I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico, your podcast host, and also I'm here to tell you I'm campaigning to be the mayor of your town. And I'm going to I'll kiss your baby if you want me to. I don't care. Uh, I'm Dean Detloff and I am Matt's campaign manager in this uh, this campaign, which I'm just hearing about now. I feel like I have a lot of homework, um, a lot of things I need to catch up on. But first things first, I'm going to I'm going to need a list of every baby in this jurisdiction. And uh, I'm going to need to start scheduling them one by one for their own individual kisses. You know, um, I think watching cartoons growing up uh, led me to believe that politicians kissed a lot more babies than they really do. Yeah, it's kind of, uh, you know, in this in this new era, the 21st century, especially, it seems like that practice has really fallen to the wayside. Yeah, probably for good reason. Can you imagine handing your baby like over to a politician to kiss on the face? I can't in my Absolutely brain. Not. I can't no. even understand why that makes no. Any sense. No, never. Never would I do that. It doesn't make any sense. You're right. <laughs> Can you imagine? Okay. All right. That that would be rough. But imagine also being on the other side, being a politician, having to kiss a lot of other people's babies. That also sounds pretty bad. <laughs> no, it's not good, especially during this COVID time. You know, yeah, I don't want to kiss <laughs> <That's> anybody. <right. laughs> Can do that today. Especially not a baby. Ooh. No, that's right. Uh, they're just uh, big germ balls. Um, well, uh, in case you haven't heard. It's an election year in the United States. Um, and in, in some ways, as a result, it's a, it feels like an election year in other parts of the world. <laughs> like here in Canada, it's not an election year. But boy, does everyone want to talk about the U.S. Uh, that also means that it's time for the left to cannibalize itself in public. Uh, <laughs> elections always bring out the best and worst, I think, of leftist discourse, because it's kind of like the time when everybody's talking about politics and communists have a lot to say about elections, so do socialists and anarchists and everybody in between. And recently, already this year, 2020, there's been a big dust-up over one person weighing in on electoral struggle, and that is everyone's favorite abolitionist, Angela Davis, who said that people should vote for Joe Biden, but she said that in a pretty qualified way. Yeah, in a recent interview with uh, Russia Today, the, the title of the interview, by the way, or, or I'm sorry, no, there is a reporting on it elsewhere, I think in the Washington Post that uh, that titled their article about this, um, 
Marxist for Biden, which I think is extremely funny. Um, <laughs> anyways, in a recent interview uh, Angela Davis did with Russia Today, she said, I don't see this election as being about choosing a candidate who will be able to lead us in the right direction. She's right. It will be about choosing a candidate <laughs> who can be most effectively pressured into allowing more space for the evolving anti-racist movement. Uh, so that's that was her statement. That's what's got everyone mad. Um, and I get it. Um, but I think the qualification that she that she lends here is actually pretty helpful. Um, if you don't know about Angela Davis uh, any more than, you know, she's a prison abolitionist that's kind of popular right now. Um, Angela Davis ran on the CPUSA, that's the Communist Party USA, uh, their presidential ticket twice as the VP candidate. And she spent her life in the communist movement, broadly speaking. Uh, so it's safe to say that she knows a thing, thing or two about electoralism and politics. Uh, <laughs> she knows, She's thought about it a little bit, I think. Um, some folks said that, uh, that's enough and we should just take her word for it. So you should suck it up and campaign and vote for Joe Biden. And other folks, uh, said that Angela Davis can be wrong and bourgeois elections are just bad across the board. Um, I mean, these are both understandable positions, but let's do the, uh, the good Christian and Marxist practice and go back to the text, which in this <laughs> case means we're going to talk about Lenin, not the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> the true you know, the text. other one yeah yeah right the apocryphal texts some some That's people the accept them as a canonical and other people don't it's one of those kind of things <laughs> yeah that's right uh it's all in there so we're, we're gonna talk about lenin we're gonna talk about the black panthers we're gonna talk about cpusa all of these things that you're gonna find so fascinating as a listener of this podcast um before we get there though um, elections are also a great time for us to revisit when we used to be Christian anarchists, which is a weird thing, <laughs> which is a very weird thing. Um, so why even participate in elections at all? If you're a Christian anarchist, if you're a Christian person who believes that our kingdom is not of this world, uh, I, I guess I'm only including this here. So we make sure we cover all of our bases that this yeah. is a podcast about leftism and Christianity. This is the Christian portion of the show. We're going to put it right here at the top. <laughs> Um, that's right. It, I think it's funny because like, um, I think, okay. So, so people on the left, um, people who are maybe further left than, you know, uh, the democratic party or the DSA or whatever, they get kind of bent out of shape about electoralism because, uh, we know that even though there are two parties, they're both just the party of capital, right? We have these, like, um, these not incorrect but yet extremely cynic sort of like uh, <laughs> positions about voting. And, you know, that's where a lot of people are coming from when it comes to voting. But, um, but, but Dean and I as Christian, as former recovering Christian anarchists have this extremely other weird way of dealing with it. So Dean, tell me what's going on here. What, what's going on with Christian anarchism and, uh, and electoralism and why are we so goddamn weird? <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a great question. Um, one that I haven't quite worked out yet, but, uh, I all right. I was reflecting on this before we recorded this episode, and I feel like I'm finally getting old enough now that the formative years of my adolescence are like alien to other people. Like you have to explain yeah. what it was like to be a young person. And uh, that's what I'm going to do extremely briefly. Uh, so, all right. I don't know if people heard, but in 2008, there was a pretty big election. Uh, it was the first year that Obama got elected. And it was also simultaneously kind of like a cresting moment, I feel, for evangelical anarchism and more broadly speaking, Christian anarchism in general in the United States. Yeah. Uh, 
people like Shane Claiborne, for example, he had written a book called Jesus for President, and he went on like a book tour uh, before the Obama election. And um, that was a, a huge kind of formative moment. It was formative for me. Anyway, I read that book and I loved it. Um, I think I still have it. It has survived my many book purges, so that at least expresses some kind of bizarre sentimental attachment, I guess. Um, but anyway, what it was like to be a Christian and a person kind of vaguely on the left back then for me was reading my Bible and understanding that the Bible said that governments are bad, kings are bad, rulers are bad, and that's why you should not vote for the president because uh, your kingdom is is in a different place that Christians should have a, a different set of values. At the time, I would have said that like capitalism is bad, but I would have said that because I would have thought Christianity told me that, not because like I understood how capitalism mm -hmm. worked and sort of judged that it was insufficient. Um, I'll tell a story about that in a minute, but what am, what am I leaving out here, Matt? What 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 could draw people in to this bizarre imaginary world of being a, an evangelical anarchist in like 2008-ish era? It's so hard to explain if you didn't go to Cornerstone. <laughs> I think that's a big part <laughs> of the story. Right. Cornerstone was a evangelical Christian music festival that was in Bushnell, Illinois. And that might sound, you know, I might have described that to you and you're like, yuck. But I got to tell you, it was very fun. Um, but at the same time, uh, that was sort of uh, a main exposure point to a lot of uh, Christian people <laughs> and their youth groups to uh, radical politics <laughs> because of some uh, really particular bands. Uh, one, Theological Spoon, which uh, which bookends, uh, well, does, is one of the bookends of our podcast. Uh, it's the song at the end. And also another band, too, called The Salters, who um, both uh, are made up of, I think, some of the same members, but um, are different bands, just the same. Anyways, um, they have this whole sort of anarchist vibe to them and a lot of other, there's a lot of complicated stuff about them, but no big deal. All that to say, um, for, for me, it's it's Shane Claiborne, but then there's also this whole other sort of like really wild sort of like mysticism about it where, you know, yeah, the king, yeah. like the, the kingdom of God is, is amongst you, this kind of thing. I'd also just read Leo Tolstoy, I think in 2008. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, same. And, uh, <laughs> Feeling like, you know, it's not just that uh, it's not just that like politics are bad and like, you know, you shouldn't vote or whatever. But it's like that there's like this sort of um, other world that you should be really participating in. That's like spiritual and very weird. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so I think that part of the story is also important. It's not just about politics and reading the Bible, but it's also about this other like wild way of being in the world. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, that's a great segue into telling my own particular story when it comes to voting. So I didn't vote in the 2008 election, which would have been the very first election I was eligible to vote. I turned 18 that year. And uh, I, my friend and I, one of my close friends who I won't name on this podcast, just in case he doesn't want to be incriminated, um, <laughs> he would find this very funny. Uh, we... Um, you know, we, we were both into that same scene, right? Listening to these these crusty punks, these Christian anarchist punk bands, uh, reading our Bibles, trying to figure out what it means to be a Christian in the world. And when the election came around, uh, both of us felt like Obama was was clearly sort of a like if you had to pick a Christian politician, I think we would have said Obama would have been closer um, in that particular election to sort of what we were after. But nevertheless, uh, the real radical thing to do was to reject even the things that are close, right? To be to have a, a totally strident position. 
And so what we resolved to do in that year was to uh, fast for 24 hours on the day of the election. And then uh, we prayed all day and we were like praying that God's will would be done, whatever it might be. And then the next day we broke our fast at a pizza place and we were like, all right, Barack Obama's the president. I guess that's how it's got to be. And that that was sort of the lens, I guess, with which we in- interpreted this whole whole bizarre, extremely weird election in this extremely also bizarre subculture, Christian subculture. I love that. That's <laughs> that's pretty good. Um, uh, 2008 was also the first uh, election I could vote in as well. But I was a year older than you because that's how time works. Yeah, beca- because you had been a because you had been a baby sooner is the thing. That's right. Exactly. I'm just, that's what I'm saying. That's how time works. Um, <laughs> I wish I would have done the same thing. Fasting would have been a great idea. I don't think that was in my particular imagination at that moment. Or maybe it was. And I was just like, it was impossible for me. I don't know. Uh, too hungry, I guess. Um, anyways, uh, instead of voting in the days prior to it, I emailed. Um, <laughs> I emailed. And I think like MySpace also. All of the like... Um, all of the anarchist organizations in the nearest big city to my small evangelical college town. <laughs> uh, I, I reached out to Food Not Bombs and some other folks too that were there. And I was just like, hey, instead of voting, I want to do something that's actually important. And I was like, you know, I'm going to go do Food Not Bombs or something for a day. I was just like assuming that that's what people would do. And instead, uh, nobody responded to me. So I just, I think, <laughs> didn't vote and like kind of hung around. <laughs> <laughs> kudos to you though that's a, a great moment of maturity of at least being like instead of voting I'll, I'll do some other political action that's great you should be proud of that <laughs> it's something man um i did something <laughs> and it was mostly <laughs> hang out on my space that's right uh yeah well um i'm glad to say that i think that world is lost it's gone uh, the vestiges remain for sure, but by and large, it's hard for me to imagine anyone living in that same world in the same way anymore. I mean, Cornerstone Festival doesn't happen anymore, so clearly it can't. It can never be revived. Uh, but I think that these kind of examples, more than just reminiscing about a bizarre time in our lives, also do reveal some things about how Christians think about elections and about politics. And at least for me, it's helpful to look back on it as a way of tracking where I used to have these kind of Christian anarchist impulses, which are different than other kinds, and uh, why now I am maybe more in a kind of Marxist um, framework. I mean, I am (laughs) in a Marxist framework, uh, and uh, why that is. So maybe it's worth kind of talking about that really briefly before we dive into Lenin. Um, I don't know about you, Matt, but I think the biggest revelation for me in particular in, in making that shift over time was actually that uh, there are real material differences between certain governments that do or don't put us on the path to a more Christian way of being in the world. And I think that's something I would have intuited back then, even in 2008, right? I had this kind of intuition that Obama was probably better than, um, I don't know, John McCain or whatever. Um, but at the same time, I felt that it was sort of ultimately indifferent that, you know, our our kingdom was of a different world. It doesn't really matter what happens in the White House. Uh, You just kind of put your head down and do the work that you're called to do. Um, I think over time, I felt like that was a a kind of purity politics that is not reflective of how the world really works. And it seemed more like abstaining from the problem rather than giving it its full due, uh, which is something I understood by 
reading Marx at a certain point in my life, uh, a person that sort of woke me up to what was really happening in the world. Um, but yeah, that's at least how I sort of made an exit from that position. Uh, what about you, Matt? Anything that you felt like really intervened in how you felt as a Christian back then? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the same vibes and ideas um, that uh, I, I think I, I started on the uh, the slow the slow ascent to toward Marxism or something when people are like, okay, so fine. Maybe the presidential election isn't important, but what about your local elections? And I'd be like, well, yeah, I guess right. that could be important. And that's, right. that snowballed into like, oh, I guess there are policies that people do enact that might affect my life or of other people's lives who I care about. <laughs> so I guess I should pay a little bit of attention to this. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, you know, electoralism is obviously not the end all and be all of politics. Um, there's a lot more that is going on, but um uh, it ends it ended up being like um, an important observation that, um, yeah, I don't know, uh, people who are in positions of power do make uh, differences in the world and they might not align with your ideology in any way. And they might have absolutely, you know, garbage, um, garbage reasons for doing the things that they're doing. But uh, it ends up being important to try to affect those things in any way you can. Yeah, that's right. Well, I think, um, I mean, this is all too brief. We could probably do a whole episode on Christian pathologies around voting and not voting in politics. But I think it helps at least to get this on the table that uh, certain Christian ideas around politics make people withdraw or retreat from politics. Um, And there's kind of an analogous thing that happens in certain factions of the left, I think, too, where uh, there's a, a kind of purity narrative that gets told there as well. So um, I don't know if this is like an exact structural analogy, but it's one that I've kind of seen in my own life <laughs> at certain points. So I'll bring it up here and maybe that'll be a good transition to talk about Lenin a little bit. So the the biggest analogy, at least that I kind of can observe, I think, is that purity analogy that Christians feel that there is a certain dirtiness to participating in politics. And so what you should really do is keep yourself unstained from the world, uh, pure from all that stuff, and do the stuff you're called to do, whether that's social justice work or, or whatever it might be. If you're a progressive Christian, you kind of uh, allow yourself to um, invest in the Christian side of things and divest from the political side. Uh, I think there's also a left way of talking about this where it says bourgeois elections are so thoroughly compromised and so thoroughly a part of the very machine that we want to demolish and get rid of that we shouldn't participate at all in them because to do so would be to grant them some kind of legitimacy, let's say, or it would also be to uh, get yourself complicit in what's going on. And there's a part of me that's sympathetic with actually both of those arguments still to this day, I think. Um, You know, if you're a Christian, you shouldn't totally identify your life with especially what happens in bourgeois elections, but uh, maybe even um, politics all across the board. You know, I I can sort of sympathize with that. And the left, too. I mean, bourgeois elections are garbage. They're very bad, extremely bad. And you you don't want to be complicit in them. But as you were just saying, Matt, things are a lot more complicated. Um, I don't know. Does that seem like a fair analogy to draw, I guess? Yeah, I think so. I mean, for, yeah, I think that's good. I, th- I think the left has, uh, the left, um, I mean, Marxists particularly who are like, you know, want to do like, 
you know, are are leery of voting or something like that because of complicity. I think that at least they have the tools to think their their way out of it, whereas like Christian anarchists don't. <laughs> like right. uh, I remember, like you know, if you're if you're a Leo Tolstoy type of Christian anarchist, you're like, well, I'm not going <laughs> to vote because that would mean that I'm also complicit in the state, and that means I'm complicit in violence. I don't want to be those things, right? right? It's like this uh, extreme apprehension uh, about your guilt in the world, where I think at least Marxists mm-hmm. can think around that, <laughs> given some. Given That's some true. time, I suppose. Um, yeah, but I think that I think it all works generally speaking. Um, well, uh, guess who has something else to say <laughs> about voting? Everybody's favorite Vladimir. Yeah, everyone's favorite Vladimir. <laughs> um, that's right. Everyone's favorite Vladimir Lenin. Um, in a, in a little in a little piece of writing uh, called "Left Wing Communism in Infantile Disorder," which is extremely <laughs> uh, good own in the title, uh, Lenin has an entire section uh, about uh, like bourgeois parliaments or like why uh, communists uh, should care about elections um, and like you know whether or not we should participate in them. I guess is kind of the thing. Um, and I mean, you know, Lenin doesn't have to be the end all and be all of your politics. I mean, he probably shouldn't. You should probably listen to some other people too. Um, but uh, that being said, I think like that Lenin has some uh, sober ideas about electoral politics, um, especially, uh, I mean, they kind of speak to the moment that we're in. Um, okay, so this part of left-wing communism and infantile, infantile disorder, uh, Lenin starts off like this. He says, should we participate in bourgeois parliaments? Uh, it is with the utmost contempt and the utmost levity that the German left communists those German lefts, uh, they reply to this question in the negative. And uh, he goes on to kind of lay out exactly why uh, the German left communists say this. And they have some reasons that you'd actually be really familiar with. Um, basically, they think that like uh, the bourgeois parliament, it's already outmoded. You know, we can't uh, we, we can't go back to bourgeois parliaments and to to which uh, Lenin says, like, I guess it is outmoded. But like, I don't know, a lot of people are still pretty involved in them. What are you talking about? We can't go back. Um, anyways, a little bit later, Lenin kind of lays out uh, at length, I guess, a bit um, a bit of like like the strategy of being involved in electoralism uh, with regard to communism. And I think it's a pretty I don't know, it's a pretty good argument. Um, so, Dean, if you don't mind, I'm going to just go ahead and read something a little bit longer here from from my favorite Vladimir. Yeah, please do. OK. He says. Even if only a fairly large minority of the industrial workers and not millions and legions follow the lead of the Catholic clergy and a similar minority of rural workers follow the landowners and the kulaks, it undoubtedly signifies that parliamentarianism in Germany has not politically outlived itself. That participation in parliamentary elections in the struggle on the parliamentary rostrum is obligatory on the party of the revolutionary proletariat specifically for the purpose of educating the backward strata of its own class and for the purpose of awakening and enlightening the undeveloped, downtrodden, ignorant, rural masses. Uh, <laughs> it's a strong way to put it. Uh, he, he's talking about something <laughs> very specific, though, and not just being mean. <laughs> just trying to uh, just put that out there. Uh, whilst you lack the strength to do away with bourgeois parliaments and every other type of reactionary institution, you must work within them, because it is there that you will still find workers who are duped by the priests and stultified by the conditions of rural life. Otherwise, you risk turning into nothing but windbags. Okay, so this is what Lenin's saying. I mean, you get it, obviously, because you've just heard me say it, but I'll rephrase it in a different way. Um, you should be involved with bourgeois politics, with bourgeois elections, because um, 
that's where the people are <laughs> because people like uh, find them uh, for whatever reason important. Um, you know, I mean, whether for the reasons that we just said, right, people are like actually convicted that um, that voting for someone will have a um, a political outcome that will benefit them or help them, you know, whether people actually do believe that surprisingly enough, or if they're just in, they're just involved in electoral politics because of like the spectacle of it all. It's important to be in that space because that's where people are. That's where people are engaged in politics. And that's like a spot where you can talk to people about like what exactly is happening in this world and in this situation. And uh, he says, if you don't do that, you just risk turning into windbags, which I think is a fair critique. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's not what you want to be. No one wants to be a windbag. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think what's so important about this is uh, Lenin has this kind of thing, like rhetorical device that he introduces in this essay that I really appreciate, where he says people say that parliamentary um, elections or bourgeois elections for our purposes are obsolete. And he says, like, yeah, in a world historical sense, like understanding how politics works, they are obsolete. We know that they're not good, that we want to get rid of them. But he distinguishes that from practical political work. And he says, in a practical sense, they are basically anything but obsolete. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are the the vehicle through which people um, think about politics. And it's unfortunate that that's the case, but it is the case. And also, if you're a thoughtful person thinking about how to take advantage of the situation that's around you, you have to intervene in those kind of situations. Um this is really, I think, one of the key points that separates Leninists from other leftist uh, expressions. Um, it's one that drives other leftists crazy <laughs> when they ta- when they talk about Leninists. But I think it's actually a really good point. Um, I think, you know, I, I think about, for example, like the Communist Party of Canada, who are good Leninists, um, they will uh, run candidates in every election knowing full well that they're not going to win any seats. But they understand that this is basically an excuse to like knock on somebody's door and say, hey, have you ever heard about communism? (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. you can't just do that when it's not an election season because people will look at you like you're out of your mind. Um, And like you would be (laughs) if you did that. and, you know, th- there's that side of it. There's also, I think, a, a sort of political calculus, like the Communist Party won't run candidates in a, um, a riding or a district where there's a pretty, like, let's say, slim race between the right and left. But if there's a race where it's like pretty obvious that one side is going to win, um, they'll run a candidate because that's a good excuse. So they're not trying to like siphon away votes from the more progressive choice in a certain area, um, but they are trying to take advantage of the situations that are around them. And I think, I mean, this is a world away from what Lenin is talking about back in the 20s when he wrote this. Um, but it is an important principle that continues to shape, I think, how communists understand elections. And I think that's a pretty significant sort of point that, we don't really have the luxury to say uh, we've evolved politically beyond this form because the form is there and that's the one that we're stuck with, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good point, though, that like uh, you can you can go out and campaign for a communist and uh, have a weird conversation at someone's doorstep, I guess. Yeah. Um, you can do your uh, your evangelism work. and People will understand why you're out there. 
<laughs> that makes sense. Uh, if you don't have a youth group, uh, if you don't have a youth group uh, mission trip to to uh, fundraise for, you got to figure out a different way to go about it. That's right. All right, Dean. Well, what else does uh, my favorite uh, Vladimir have to say about elections? Man, so much. Kind of a lot, actually. But I'll pull out just one more, which is one of my favorite underread pieces by Lenin, if you're a person from the United States. Um, so in 1912, Lenin wrote an article called The Results and Significance of the U.S. Presidential Elections. So this is before the Russian Revolution had taken place. Um, and that election is pretty bizarre in the U.S. I don't know. There, there's like a lot going on in the early 20th century. But um, let me think of how much to go into. I'll go into it extremely briefly. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt, he was... Um, he was doing a good job in terms of the Republican Party for a while. Like the party liked him and he liked the party and things were going OK. He was kind of a, a more progressive style Republican at that time. And, you know, back then, Republicans and Democrats are very different than they are now. Uh, and he had a pretty big falling out with the party and he ran as a third party candidate uh, in 1912. He established a new party and there was like all kinds of stuff going on. And they completely split the vote, and um, basically they both lost. Both he and the Republican candidate lost. Uh, but it was a, a really kind of interesting fracturing of the Republican Party at the time. So Lenin is like writing in light of that, like he's watching all that happen. Um, and this is like before the election actually occurs. So he's sort of thinking about the crisis of the Republican Party. So anyway... Uh, there's a lot that he says that I think are is instructive in this extremely short um, little piece, but uh, there's just two quotes that I wanted to pull out. So let me read the first quote, which is talking about this, this crisis. Uh, Lenin says, The world's significance of the U.S. elections lies not so much in the great increase in the number of socialist votes, which had happened in the previous election, as in the far-reaching crisis of the bourgeois parties, in the amazing force with which their decay has been revealed. Lastly, the significance of the elections lies in the unusually clear and striking revelation of bourgeois reformism as a means of combating socialism. Uh, this is something Lenin noticed in 1912 that I think is actually really instructive for the current electoral season, and uh, let me explain a little bit more about some of the context. So Roosevelt, again, being that kind of more progressive voice, is trying to have a more progressive platform because on Lenin's view, Roosevelt kind of sees the writing on the walls that uh, there is a growing socialist movement. There's a growing popular workers movement. And Roosevelt understands that you got to appeal to that sort of thing. Um, Roosevelt's decision is to appeal with a reform of a capitalist party specifically. That's the answer, uh, and that's how you deal with a growing socialist sentiment. Uh, I think what's really great about this observation is it maps like so cleanly onto what's happening right now with Joe Biden. Um, you know, in large part, the Biden campaign is exactly this. It is a bourgeois reformist response to a growing uh, demand for socialism in the U.S. Uh, and it's not just Bernie, of course. It strikes all across the nation. It's a movement that's much larger than Bernie Sanders, but certainly Bernie is a big deal, uh, bringing socialism into the Democratic Party as a term at the very least. Uh, and I think it's important to kind of recognize that there's a crisis happening in the Democratic Party, which is kind of the inversion of the crisis that was happening in the Republican Party back in 1912. And uh, Lenin sort of encourages us to see that the, the real significance of this kind of election 
isn't the 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 massive boost to a potential socialist moment, but the the crisis that's happening in the bourgeois parties, and of course there's a crisis in the Republican Party too, in in a far right direction. But uh, for the Democrats, I think it's really instructive to see Biden as the the sort of compromised bourgeois reformist candidate that's emerging to to combat the socialist threat. That's right. Um, that's all true, except Joe Biden's doing an extremely bad job. <laughs> if anything, he's he's driving those antagonisms way up. Everyone, everyone yeah. hates Joe Biden. <laughs> that's right. But, but but I mean, like generally, though, you're right, though, you know, he's like that's um, that's his role is he's supposed to be this like mostly progressive person i mean um he's i mean he's not in fact progressive in any way but um that's the that's the marketing surrounding him that's how he's being uh pitched to, to people in the united states so right. um so uh, it stands though right i mean it's right <laughs> that's right uh good i'm glad i'm right i'm glad you think i'm right uh we can yes. keep doing this podcast i was so so nervous for that one brief moment um yeah, it all comes down to that <laughs> <laughs> Let me go to the conclusion of this article, because I think this is actually where we can bring in sort of Angela Davis's comments and maybe we can circle back around to Joe Biden with this. We can mm -hmm. we can sort of pause in the middle of the podcast here to evaluate what we think about voting for Joe Biden. Yeah. Um, all right. So at the end, uh, Lenin says this. The American proletarian has already awakened and has taken up his post. He greets Roosevelt's success with cheerful irony, as if to say, you lured four million people with your promises of reform, dear imposter Roosevelt. Very well. Tomorrow, those four million will see that your promises were a fraud, and don't forget that they are following you only because they feel that it is impossible to go on living in the old way. Mm. Um, I think that's a really instructive way to understand the Biden election. Uh it seems to me that those who are persuaded to vote for Biden are persuaded in precisely the way that Lenin suggests that if they're awakened to take their post, it's with a certain irony saying, OK, Biden, you know, you've managed to to convince these people, enough working people to come along to your side. Uh, but don't forget that, like, everybody sees through you. And uh, the only reason people are voting for you is because they think it's impossible to stick around with Donald Trump, that. You're you're only president by virtue of the threat. Uh, what will happen in November, obviously, is anybody's guess. But I think uh, Lenin is right to sort of give us this perspective, at least, that a Biden success is not necessarily a uh, a clean success. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what Lenin is saying here is exactly what some people on the left have been saying for a while, right? That like Joe Biden getting elected doesn't mean that all the protests and uprisings uh, are going to stop right <laughs> it's mm -hmm. that those people who are who will you know begrudgingly vote for joe joe biden in the end uh will continue marching and will continue sort of like you know the struggle against white supremacy uh against racial capitalism and so on um and joe biden like <laughs> sucks to be him is gonna have to deal with it all when it's all over right like all these people are still going to be there um they're it's not like it's not like, you know, Joe Biden will win and we'll be like, well, finally, a victory for the people or something. Mm -hmm. And we can all just chill out for a minute. It's like, mm -hmm. no, Joe, if Joe Biden wins, then that's fine. But uh, it's not like the struggle stops. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's exactly what Angela Davis is saying, too, right? That uh, as she puts it, what we're really voting for is not a, a leader or something like that, but a person who we think could be at least could sort of be pressured more than the other. 
Um, which is not to say that Joe Biden is like a great listener, just waiting around to hear what the social movements tell him to do or anything like that. But uh, at least as far as I'm concerned, I think you're kidding yourself if you think that like Donald Trump and Joe Biden are the exact same kind of person who can be pressured or not pressured in the exact same kind of way. And that's what Angela Davis is getting us to sort of think about. And yeah. I think what, what Lenin is sort of suggesting too, right? That, um, yeah, like, I don't know, vote for Biden because you think that that's kind of the role that you have to play right now. Uh, but do it understanding that this is a person that you could uh, pressure in a way that would be different than pressuring Trump. And that's not negligible. That's true. I mean, um, something that, that is important there, too, is that it's, you know, how how Joe Biden will and the Democratic Party writ large, right? Like how they will end up navigating like the <laughs> their massive unpopularity <laughs> is going to be really important. Right now, it's like easy for them because it's an uphill battle against someone who is like cartoonishly evil. Right. So it's like um, mm -hmm. they're 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 the good guys. It's so easy to paint themselves that way. Um, but, you know, if they are people who are in power and like there are still there's still massive pressure against them. Right. And there's still protests and there's still like riots and uprisings and there's still organized resistance to everything, you know like there is now like the, the 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 liberal facade of of the democratic party like crumbles and they can't do anything about it other than you know either listen or uh or like you know look stupid and uh i don't know i'm not saying that joe biden will listen <laughs> but uh there's a chance you know there's a there's a different chance than uh donald trump would for sure yeah i mean it's important to frame this too in with the hindsight of obama Right. That uh, a lot of these movements already occurred under the Obama presidency. Right. Black Lives Matter started under Obama. Occupy's Wall, Occupy Wall Street was under Obama, Standing Rock, et cetera, and lots of stuff in between. Um, all those things happened under Obama. And so it's not to suggest that having a, a Democrat or a liberal president would just automatically win these concessions. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, that's not what Angela Davis is saying. She's just saying, uh, if you take a kind of sober look around you, um, you can understand that there is a material difference between these two things, negligible though it might be. And this is about uh, the long game, not present pretending that you could sort of win overnight. Um, I think that goes back to what you were just talking about with uh, the left wing communism piece that, um, yeah, like parliamentary elections, they're obsolete in a historical sense, but like they're here, we're stuck with them. So we've got to deal with it. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's also important to recognize that voting is like not a big deal. <laughs> like people uh, treat it as though it's a, a massive kind of commitment. But at the end of the day, um, it's not. And uh, you can just <laughs> sort of do it and forget about it. And to inflate it to be such a massive identity uh, defining sort of moment, I think is actually, I don't know, my, my hot take is that it's just giving into the liberal lie that voting is all that matters, but from the yeah. left, which yeah. is not what you want to do. Yeah, totally. I think that's right. Um, so Angela Davis's whole point is that Joe Biden, um, you know, you, sh you should vote for Joe Biden, not because not for moral reasons, right? That's not it. It's for like material reasons. You should vote for Joe Biden. That right. There is an opportunity uh, well, well, first of all, I mean that that Joe Biden might um, might enact policies that benefit people. <laughs> that would be nice, but unlikely. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, just the same. The other reason is that he might be a person that could be pressured into um, 
you know, making more space for the ongoing anti-racist movement, as she says. And I think that's true. Um, uh, people are upset that she thinks that. And uh, something I found interesting, I've been doing a lot of reading on the Black Panthers recently um, by way of Asada Shakur's uh, biography, which is extremely fun. Anyways, um, I uh, I did learn that the Black Panthers at one time, um, they also were invested in electoralism, but um, not in, in any kind of moral terms whatsoever, but exactly in the way that Angela Davis is is presenting it here. So I thought I'd read this this little bit of history uh, mm-hmm. really quickly, j- just to prove the point that like what Angela Davis is saying is not just like, um, her being like a reformist or something, but this is kind of like rooted in I think the 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 practice from the Black Panthers and just from like communists in in history. But Black Panthers are a good demonstration. Um, so here we go. The Black Panther Party sponsored in uh, 1972 a voter registration drive that put several thousand new voters on the books for Alameda and Contra Costa counties uh, in California. Uh, Black Panther Party chairman Bobby Seals had run for Oakland mayor. <laughs> this is awesome. Actually, <laughs> I do love that. Yeah, it's pretty fun. Um, he shocked political observers by coming in second in the first round of voting and forcing a runoff against the incumbent white mayor, uh, John Reading, with Reading choosing not to run again in 1977. Wilson, uh, who is the uh, another person that was in the uh, the mayoral election. Wilson won the mayoral election in a runoff against uh, against reading. So there we go. Um, the, this is a quote from an observer. Uh, the Black Panther Party helped Wilson uh, get elected more so than the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, says Jeffrey Price, uh, Jeffrey Pete. Lionel admitted that, uh, sorry, Lionel Wilson admitted that, and his quote was printed in one of the Black Panther Party papers. It was just a fact. They were organized. They were at the pinnacle of their power and development at that particular time. In the normal course of events, the Black Panther Party would have used its organizational power to pressure uh, to put pressure on Wilson and to address the specific African-American interests and issues in the city. But Panther co-founder Huey Newton had just returned to Oakland from exile that year of Wilson's election as mayor, setting off a fierce turmoil in, in fighting within the Black Panthers, uh, which led to the ouster of Seal and Elaine Brown, who were both uh, leaders in the party. Um, and the Huey Newton kind of steered the party in a different direction, away from electoralism. Uh, the, the whole point of the story is, first of all, isn't awesome that Bobby Seale ran for mayor. <laughs> <laughs> That's the Parks and Rec I want to watch. Um, that would be a great TV <laughs> That's show. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I'm so into it. But, uh, you know, when um, Bobby Seale came in second, they they threw their they threw their like weight behind this other guy uh, who they thought uh, who would go on to be the first black mayor, um, by the way, in Oakland. Um, and um they they supported him right they did campaign for him and i you know he um he probably wasn't a perfect candidate he probably wasn't a black panther himself but um but uh they used their sort of political power at the time to get him elected to office and then the plan was then to hold him extremely accountable for every single thing that they wanted and i think that's like pretty good right like electoralism will not deliver us all of the goods that we want um not it won't transform the world in the way that we want but um but like right now that's where people are invested like what are you going to do about it i guess right either Mm -hmm. like get extremely strategic about it and hold people accountable um or or don't i guess and do nothing i don't i don't know what to say yeah yeah i mean it's a point for the left i think it's a point for christians too to bring that angle back around um because Christians are always going on and on about how we've got to 
do things like enact social justice. I mean, liberal, good, progressive Christians are always saying that. Uh, but there is a sense in which people can say they're like above the Democrats or the Republicans, right? They're beyond the fray. I and mean, we've talked about that at length in the podcast before in previous episodes. Uh, but I think that's a really dangerous way of thinking about politics because at the end of the day, um, we should be getting our hands dirty because some situations are more conducive to establishing social justice in a kind of Christian framework than others. You know, if you're really a Christian who thinks about social justice, then you would want to pressure an elected official to do one thing rather than rather than another. And if you want to do that effectively, then you have to understand that some are more easily pressured than others. Uh, and that just seems like such a sort of basic principle. Um, but it's really easy for Christians and leftists both to identify so strongly with principles that they, I think, kind of lose the strategic plot. So it's good to have the Panthers as a, a counterpoint, at least, to understanding that there was a revolutionary organization that tried to think through all the bizarre things that it would mean to participate in electoral struggle. Yeah, totally. Just, uh, I, I mean, again, the Black Panthers don't need to be like the <laughs> the sort of end of the story or whatever, but just like yeah. London, I think they kind of help us um, understand the ways that other people who are, you know, committed to socialism have kind of thought through the problem. And I find it at least uh not a bad strategy yeah i agree well let's uh end here talking about communists contemporary communists um sure. <laughs> i should say okay look there are a lot of opinions in the socialist world and the communist world etc and you can have your own we're not here to tell you what to do uh but I think it's actually important in a moment like this for the left to open itself up to a variety of perspectives on on what it means to think about elections and all that kind of stuff. And uh, to do that in a way that is not just looking to, like, get upset at somebody else, but looking to find points that might actually be agreeable or, or places that you can work with. Um, and push people in certain directions and learn from them too. And I really appreciate hearing from the CPUSA in particular, although I, you know, everybody has their disagreements with this or that line. I think the CPUSA has some good things to say. And uh, they um, have certain, <laughs> they get in hot water every electoral season because people like, <laughs> I think, hear certain headlines and misunderstand what's really going on there. And it's worth talking about that a bit. So there was an article um, on the CPUSA's and the CPUSA's website not too long ago by Michael David Lynch um, that is directly on Leninism and electoralism, and I think it's good to read a little bit from that. So let me read, and then we can chat about it. <clears throat> so Michael says, uh, "Many ask if it's a compromise to vote for a Democrat to oust Trump in the November elections, and the answer is yes." But Lenin stated that these compromises are necessary on the road to revolution to build unity and revolutionary potential. Without struggle, there's nothing to build on. Class struggle and the road to revolution is a marathon, not a sprint. Uh, goes on to say, let us reiterate that our party does not endorse bourgeois candidates. Rather, we endorse ideas and policy over individual candidates, no matter how progressive or left they may seem. For example, our party endorses the Green New Deal and Medicare for All, but we never endorsed Bernie Sanders. We, like the Russian Bolsheviks living a century ago, understand the limits of bourgeois democracy and are critical of the reactionary policies held by conservative and liberal politicians alike regarding health care, education, women's productive rights, 
reproductive rights, uh, climate change, and so forth. But let's unite the working class around these issues we agree on and defeat Trump in November. Uh, let's celebrate Lenin's 150th birthday and honor his legacy by carrying on the torch of revolution and freedom. First stop, defeat the fascist threat. King Trump, like the Russian Tsar, has fallen out of favor with working people and will go down in history as yet another pitiful tyrant who refused to meet the demands of his suffering people. We must avoid further setbacks for the working class. We ain't going back. Uh, I think that, I mean, there's a lot to maybe key in on here and things that people can offer plenty of comradely critiques on. You know, the Green New Deal is not something I'm particularly pumped about, for instance, <laughs> for good communist reasons. Uh, but the the broad strokes of this, I think, are worth considering, namely um, owning, first of all, that it is a compromise to vote for a Democrat over Trump in November but owning also that compromises are things that you don't have the luxury of uh, choosing not to do if you want to forward the struggle as it is. Uh, certainly, it would be great to have different material conditions that we could choose from in this particular moment. Uh, but the fact is, these are, these are the ones we have. And in the absence of a real socialist party that has a, a mass appeal at this very moment, um, it's kind of like, what's the calculus that you want to run? And I think it's important to attend to all that sort of nuance to recognize that to say you're voting for Joe Biden is not to say you endorse Joe Biden or something, uh, which, again, I think is to, to kind of make that leap is to give into the lie that liberalism tells that every vote is a, a happy endorsement. Um, instead, it's to see this all within a much broader strategic story narrative. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Um, I guess to me, like what always sticks out is. Well, I mean, you said earlier, too, right, like that, um, that sometimes uh, people on the left uh, blow the importance of voting up to this huge, <laughs> uh, just like Christians do, I guess, <laughs> this huge, like moral stance, right? That's the most important thing. Um, and, you know, we have to we have to really like reckon with the compromises that we'll have to make when we vote or something. But um, just like, you know, what Michael David Lynch is saying here that, uh voting for a shitty, a shitty democrat in november is is a um is a compromise for sure if you're a socialist um or if you're basically anybody <laughs> but um you know <laughs> the, the compromise though is is in, like parsing out what the compromise is is actually kind of the, important right the compromise is that you have to like just vote for a guy <laughs> and then and and then that's it. Like you don't have to compromise anything else about your life, though. You know, it's not like you're compromising like, right. what you actually believe. It's not compromising like the terms by which you'll you'll struggle and like continue to struggle. It doesn't compromise any of the other work that like you could possibly do. It doesn't mean that you're not gonna like criticize uh, Joe Biden. It doesn't mean that you're not gonna criticize any other Democrats. It doesn't mean that you're gonna stop going on strike or you're going to stop marching or you're going to stop like, you know, <laughs> yelling at yelling about politics on the internet or at people in real life or whatever. None of those things have to be compromised. Just like the one compromise is that like, you have to recognize that um, yes, having, having Joe Biden would be marginally better than Donald Trump uh, for some strategic and material reasons. Um, so I don't know, put, putting it in that context, it seems kind of, I don't know, just like not something to get too bent, in bent out of shape about. Um, obviously it sucks, but like, what else do you have to work with in this moment? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, all that to say, I think Angela Davis is right. Um, <laughs> that's my hottest take. Uh, but I I'll, I'll, um, I'll say that while also recognizing that 
I think there is a temptation that a lot of people have to say, Angela Davis said, vote for Joe Biden, so you have to. And I think that's also not exactly fair. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I feel pretty convinced that, like, voting isn't a huge deal. It doesn't take away from you, like you were just saying, Matt. And, um, you know, it's it's a thing that can, in fact, create openings that wouldn't otherwise exist. I feel convinced by that. But I wouldn't fault anybody for not feeling that way. And the biggest thing that I think drives me wild about these conversations around Angela Davis in particular is that she spent her life uh, as a revolutionary doing a lot of rev revolutionary stuff. And uh, I think that there's a tendency for especially kind of liberal leaning folks to then mobilize her against other people to say Angela Davis says vote for Joe Biden. So you have to while ignoring everything else she says, because <laughs> it's like vote for Joe Biden. Um, but also she's like be an abolitionist and be out in the streets and organize with other people. That's okay. the real thing that Angela Davis is telling you to do. She's telling you to vote for Joe Biden. Sure. But what she's really saying is uh, build a movement that can pressure a person like Joe Biden. And, uh, you know, when that person is in office, if they are then uh, be ready to sort of meet them with the resistance that you have that actually matters. And I think that's really the key to the whole conversation. Um, it's easy to get hung up on do or don't vote. Uh, it's much more important, I think, to be hung up on uh, how are we going to organize a resistance regardless of who gets elected, um, no matter what we decide to do in our personal lives. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. You can buy our stickers and shirts and posters and whatnot at redbubble.com. Um, you can search for The Magnificast there. You can follow us on Twitter. You can send us an email at themagnificast at gmail.com. Um, man, you can just find us wherever you want. Our music is by Amari Armstrong, and our outro is by The Illogical Spoon. See you next week. Church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still.